Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. As the kids return to their seat, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, the birth narrative of Jesus. And I will tell you, I've been asked more times than there are people in my family so so that you don't think it's just them that have asked me this, is the sermon going to be short this morning? (laughs) I will do my best. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word once again. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Most gracious Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word. Would you strengthen me now by your spirit to proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly? And would you illumine all of our hearts and minds that we may hear your word? And even now, as we gaze upon the glory of Christ, that we too might be transformed from one glory to another. We ask this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. Well, in coming to this very simple account of the birth of Christ, it's important that we recall to begin with the reason that Luke wrote his gospel in the first place. When we go back to the opening verses, we were reminded of, of these words, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. At least two of the many, it says, who had undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had taken place were Matthew and Luke. John's gospel was written sometime maybe as much as a decade or more after Luke wrote his gospel, but, but Matthew's and Mark's gospels were written before. And and we've already said that that Luke was writing to Theophilus that he might have certainty about what he had been taught, specifically about what he had been taught, what he had learned from these other narratives about who Jesus is and what he did while he was here and what the point of all of it was. And that we are to gain certainty about Jesus and, and his ministry is important to remember as we talk about the birth of Christ because it puts some definite limits on what we say about this whole scene. For example, if if I were to ask you, or if someone asked you to describe the scene of Jesus' birth, you would probably be able to provide quite a bit of detail about the scene. However, if you were paying attention when we just read Luke's gospel, his account of the actual birth, there are remarkably few details about what happened. 
Our imaginations have, have filled in a number of details about this unconscionable innkeeper who turned away an apparently very pregnant woman and her family, leaving them no option but to go camp in a barn with a bunch of animals where she had to have a baby with oxen and sheep and camels and, and, and cattle looking on. And then, and then she had to put this baby in, in a feeding trough. And a, a lot of these details, though, just aren't in the story that we just read. And noticing that, we may think, oh, well, well they must be in, in Matthew or Mark's gospel or John's gospel. Surely these details are, are, are there somewhere. But they're not. When we read Matthew's gospel, we, we, we read this. The birth of Jesus Christ, what the ESV has right at the top. And we're like, okay, here's where all the details come. But then we read it and we realize that, wait, this entire story really has very little to do with the birth of Jesus. It's all about the, the dream that Joseph had warning him not to divorce his wife. And then all it says about the birth is he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. And then it's off to a scene that probably was a year later when the Magi showed up. And so we think, okay, well, it must be in Mark or John. Well, when you read those two Gospels, you realize they don't even mention the birth of Christ. It's not even there. And so with these remarkably few details, though, we run into yet another problem that Luke's point of writing puts some limits on. Not all of the details are actually all that helpful in understanding what was going on. For example, the word translated in, in this passage, on which a lot of our details kind of hinge, is the same word in, in Mark 14 and Luke 22 that's used for the upper room, where they took the Last Supper. It's the exact same word. In other words, based on the text that we have here in Luke, it's just as likely that Luke is telling us that, that what happened was they arrived at the family home in Jerusalem that where Joseph was raised and the extra beds in the guest room were already taken. So they made do and used a manger for a bassinet when the need arose. That's just as likely based on the text, based on what we have in Scripture, as anything else. Maybe more likely. And after all, which of you who have kids and have traveled haven't had to, in the midst of travels, be somewhat creative with a place for your kid to sleep? A manger, it, that seems quite fitting. We've put our kids in stranger places for sure. So what certainty then is this simple account of the birth of Christ what certainty are we to, to gain pertaining to Christ if it wasn't about the scene of the birth? What's Luke wanting us to see? Well, he's offering us some historical certainty. Matthew, as, as he always does throughout his gospel, provides all kinds of, of Old Testament passages pointing, here's where the prophet said this, and here's where this was fulfilled, and, and he's very explicit, and it's very helpful. Mark cuts straight to the ministry of Jesus, skipping the birth account altogether, but, but Luke gives us some peculiar historical details surrounding the birth of Christ. One scholar, Walter Liefeld, writes, in the birth narrative, Luke stresses three things. The political situation, to explain why Jesus' birth took place in Bethlehem. That Bethlehem was the town of David, to stress Jesus' messianic claim. And the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. For our purposes this morning, we might change that last point to the, the human circumstances of Jesus' birth. 
See, for Jesus to be the Messiah, there were a number of conditions that had to be met. As we've already said, Matthew is constantly connecting the story to those conditions and expectations that are found all throughout the Old Testament. We've read several of them this morning in Daniel 7 and Isaiah 9. We'll look at Micah 5. All of these passages pointing forward to something that had to happen. Luke provides historical certainty that it did in fact happen in just the right way. However, even these historical points are full of theological significance. So, so the story is, is historical in the same way as I told the kids that, that the story of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln is historical. It's telling us about something that actually took place. But it's something that took place in history that's chock full of theological significance. When we consider these points that Dr. Liefeld points out, these points that are actually found in the text, we get a wonderful picture of the providence of God, of, of covenant fulfillment, and of the incarnation of Jesus and why that matters. And so what we'll see in this passage is that God has providentially was providentially fulfilling his covenant promises through the very ordinary birth of Jesus in real history. And seeing this, we, even this morning, should have certainty concerning the things we have been taught about Jesus, just as Luke desired for Theophilus. Not just certainty that we can tell a story in a theological way that lines up with the Old Testament, but certainty that the story actually unfolded that way that it was supposed to, based on the Old Testament, that it actually unfolded that way in real history, thereby giving it theological significance. So, so these are the points that we're going to look at briefly-ish this morning. Providence in the birth of Jesus, covenant fulfillment in the birth of Jesus, and incarnation in the birth of Jesus. So first, providence in the birth of Jesus. In the weeks leading up to Advent this year, we took some time to study this great doctrine of God's providence. In the story of Jesus' birth, we see this is at work in the political goings-on that brought Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. Because it was, of course, necessary for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah was to come from. And so this is our first historical fact that's laden with theological importance. Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem as the Old Testament required. We learn this explicitly in Matthew when, when the Magi show up. Herod, of course, was not thrilled when he heard the news that a king had been born. He wanted nothing to do with that. So naturally, he gathered his Bible scholars and, and he asked them, where was the Christ to be born? That was what he wanted to know. And it wasn't, as we know, so he could worship him, but so he could do away with him. And these Bible answer men provided just the answer Herod was seeking. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here they're pointing back to Micah 5 that we read last night. This great prophecy foretelling the coming of the Messiah from Bethlehem. Brian Ocker, an Old Testament scholar, summarizes Micah's narrative this way. He says, The Lord, the judge who scatters his people for their transgressions and sins, is also the shepherd king who in covenant faithfulness gathers, protects, and forgives them. 
And this is exactly what we read in Micah 5. As, as Micah has announced judgment, he turns to the promises of deliverance and writes these words that the Bible scholars of Herod, that they, they pointed to. That this one would come from Bethlehem and, 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 and that he would bring peace to the people of Israel. And when we add this to the words of Isaiah, we, we begin to see all the more the layers of God's providence at work in this story. Because Isaiah in chapter 9 that we read earlier today, as our Old Testament reading, he wrote of this light from Galilee that would come. So all of a sudden what we have when we look at these Old Testament passages, and we could add to this, of course, all of a sudden what we have is a Messiah who is to be from Galilee, but born in Nazareth. They were quite a, quite far apart when you look at a map. And... and when the oldest required was, was that this one from Galilee and Nazareth in Galilee be born in Bethlehem in Judea. And, and for us, that might not seem particularly odd. If you were to say, well, I'm from Mayflower, but I was born in Conway, you would say, well, that makes perfect sense. Mayflower doesn't have a hospital. Conway has two. You probably, if you're going to have a baby, either go to Conway or go to Little Rock. It just adds up. But in their day, rather than going to a hospital, that's just not how the world worked then, midwives would come to your home and, and you would have the baby at home. So this horse historical question remains. Why was this family that, that lived in Nazareth and Galilee, why are they having their baby some 90 miles away in Bethlehem in Judea? Luke records for us in these first five verses that what was going on was God was providentially working out through the occupying Roman government, calling for a census, he was working out just exactly how a promised Galilean would be born in Bethlehem as the shepherd king and who would execute the office of a king in subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's what Luke is wanting to know. As we said earlier, Luke was probably written after Matthew, and, and whereas Matthew gives us all of these biblical theological connections, here's what happened in the Old Testament, here's where it's fulfilled, and all these specific things, Luke explains for Theophilus these, these historical details that are not included in the other gospel. Luke gives us these details of history through which Yahweh was at work. So, so we could, you know, kind of begin asking questions. Why did Mary and Joseph move away from home in Bethlehem to live in Nazareth? Why did, why did they settle in Nazareth, in Galilee specifically? There's a lot of other places they could have gone. Why were the Romans in charge at this point? Why, for the tax census, did the Romans require Mary and Joseph to come home? And while we could give any number of, of answers to these questions that, that would satisfy them, we can also answer each of them saying, because God was providentially working out in history his eternal plan to redeem a people for himself through the birth of his son, who according to his perfect word would be from Nazareth, but born in Bethlehem. Far from some worldly circumstance like a census or, or, or an occupying government, far from some worldly circumstance thwarting the promises and plans of Yahweh, it is through them and typically in ways we couldn't fathom and don't understand. It's through these circumstances that God brings about his perfect will of salvation for his people in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son who was born in Bethlehem and raised 
in Galilee. And this is no less true for us now as we wait his second coming than it was as they waited for his first coming. All the layers of God's providence in which we find the birth of Jesus wrapped give us certainty about the things we have been taught concerning Jesus because in them we see his providence and the fulfillment of his word. And they teach us not to look at our personal circumstances or the circumstances of the world and doubt God's promises, but rather to look at his promises and trust his providences. We may, and many of us do, like the faithful living in the Roman-occupied promised land of the first century, look out at the world and look at our lives and seem to see so very many reasons to doubt God's goodness, to question his faithfulness, to wonder if we are actually fools for believing all of this. But Christmas and, and Luke's account reminds us that the circumstances of the world are not stacked against God's will but are the medium by which he is working his sovereign will to establish his kingdom through Jesus according to his covenant promises. Promises to which we see Luke point as he tells the story of Jesus' birth. And this is our second point this morning. Covenant fulfillment and the birth of Jesus. As we've worked our way through Advent, studying the first chapter of Luke, we've seen each week that the people of God were waiting on God to fulfill, on Yahweh to bring about these promises made so long ago, especially those made to Abraham and those to David. He's been very careful to craft the story of Jesus, the coming of Christ in Abrahamic and Davidic terms. The angel came to Mary and she cast a decidedly Davidic vision. That your son will inherit the kingdom of God. He will be on the throne of David and his kingdom will be established forever. All of this, of course, is explicitly referring to the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Then when Mary sings her song, she ends it with these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is explicitly connecting what God is doing through her by this child that she's going to give birth to with the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then Zechariah, and and, and we won't take time to to read the whole song of Zechariah that Jay preached so well on last week, but but he brings all of this together, the Davidic promises and and a ruler that would come from the line of David and the Abrahamic promises and, and the seed that would come. He's tying it all, everything that he sees happening before him. As his wife gives birth to John the Baptist and and, and his nephew or whatever relative it was that, that Jesus would be to him is about to be born as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he ties it all together to the fulfillment of these covenant promises. So when we come back to Luke chapter 2 and we read in verses 4 and 5, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David... All of a sudden, sirens should be going off in our head. Oh, this is significant. It matters that he's of the house and lineage of David. Why? Because that's who they were waiting on. They were waiting on someone to come and fulfill the promises to Abraham. That these promises would be historically fulfilled when one from his line was born. This is made explicit in Genesis 15.4 where we read... 
Yahweh say to Abram, your very own son shall be your heir. Someone from his line would have to be, would have to be born. The fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises would come true through a Hebrew, a son of Israel, a, a Jew, the promised seed who would inherit the land, who would bring all the promises to fulfillment, everything made to Abraham, who would bring all of that about, would be Jewish. For the promises to David to be historically filled, a seed in the line of David had to be born. Again, this is made explicit in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. The fulfillment of the Davidic promises would come through one born to David, the great Hebrew king. The promised seed who would establish the kingdom of God would be Davidic. Logically, as David was an ethnic Jew, if you come from the line of David, you also come from the line of Abraham. So, so Luke, in, in an economy of words, simply says, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Here, we're being told that, that the fulfillment of the covenants is happening. The one they're waiting on, the Messiah in the line of David who has established the kingdom of God, whose throne would see no end, who would reign forever. The one promised in Daniel 7 that Rob read for us earlier, he was being born. This is the certainty that Luke was writing to give Theophilus and by extension to give us concerning the things that have been taught about Jesus. The question is not, can we somehow shoehorn this baby into the prophecies that were grounded in history and made future historical claims? The question is, do the historical details of the birth of this child align with the historical details of the expected Messiah based on Old Testament prophecies? It's not enough for us to be able to make a few kind of creative theological moves and thereby connect Jesus to these promises. If that's all we can do, then we're, we're left with nothing more than a myth akin to the myths of ancient Greece or Rome. Something that, that, that we look at reality and then come up with a story to explain it. The promises of the long-awaited Messiah were grounded in historical facts. A son would come from a particular people and a particular family, and that son would be the Messiah who would bring salvation to the world. And Luke is writing to let us know that, yes, the one we call Jesus, he is that son. This is a real historical figure who came in fulfillment of God's promises. The Christmas story reminds us that our confidence, our hope, our security, our salvation is not based on a myth that's been made up in order to give explanation to reality but on the fulfillment of the promises of God coming to true, coming to fulfillment in history. When we celebrate Christmas, we are not looking at the world and coming up with an explanation of how things are and, and why things are. That's, as we've said, how myth works. That They make sense because they, they were written to match reality. In other words, with a myth, the story doesn't explain reality, but reality actually explains the story. Luke, by providing these particular historical details about Jesus, who is giving us something quite the opposite. When we celebrate Christmas, we are remembering that a true story that truly explains reality, because it's not made up to fit 
but a story that actually took place in history with real people and real historic details and real fulfillment of the long-spoken prophecies. That's what we celebrate. Like a myth, yes, the story of Christmas does explain reality, but unlike a myth, the story of Christmas is not a man-made explanation of what already existed, but is the unfolding in history of reality itself through the one who was truly born as the seed of Abraham in the line of David, as the promised Messiah. And this one was no less than the Son of God in the flesh who came to save his people. And so we turn to our final point, incarnation and the birth of Jesus. We've seen God's providence work out. We've seen him fulfill the covenant through Christ. What's this incarnation piece? Why does this matter? When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the living God who is spirit and does not have a body like men, to to use the, the children's catechism question. We're talking about him joining us on earth by taking on human flesh. We're talking about the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, as John tells us. We're talking about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2. That's what we're looking at. God coming in the flesh as a human. Now, notice in in, in Luke's narrative here how utterly human everything that happens is. Jesus is born subject to the governing authorities. It's it's not the case that like, oh, well, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting on forever. He doesn't have to do what you say, Rome. He's going to shatter you with a rod of iron, so we'll have our baby wherever we please. No. They had to be displaced for the birth of the one who would shatter the kingdoms of the earth. He's born as part of a family with a long history. Joseph and Mary had to go back to their hometown, probably because at least Joseph still owned land there. That was where they were from. They had roots. They had a story. And while his conception, albeit, well, it was a little abnormal, Jesus is born according to the very normal human process of childbirth. Mary carried Jesus in her womb for nine months while he grew and was utterly reliant on her for life. When the time came to be birth, uh, to give birth, the result was not a little kind of halo demigod who needed nothing. The result was a baby who by the normal birthing processes was forced from the comfort and warmth of his mother's womb into the world and he was cold and tired, and he needed to be swaddled up just like every other baby, and he needed a nap just like every other baby. Now, the whole point of this sermon has has been to not add detail to the text, but, but I do want to ask for you to allow me one flourish, just so we understand how human the situation was. Just like all of you moms and probably every other mom in history, Mary probably looked at her baby laying there in this manger, and whispered in Hebrew as he slept, you've had a big day today, haven't you? That's how human this situation was. We must see that Jesus was, in his humanity, a regular baby boy. He needed his diapers changed. He needed to be fed. He cried. The song that that says that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. No, he cried. That's how he communicated that he was hungry. 
the regularity of his birth is highlighted by the fact that he was born probably in the family home, like every other kid would have been, or perhaps in an attached stable where there were likely other people also staying. And he was laid in, in an impromptu bassinet like any other child would have been who was born at such an inconvenient time. Even that detail, the inconvenience of the timing of his birth, how completely human is that? The bags, they didn't have their go bag ready. They weren't even at home. And all of a sudden, here he comes, like it or not, he's ready to be born. It's just the most human story ever. Of course, in the days, weeks, months, years to, to come, all kinds of events would unfold highlighting that, that this baby that was born in this very normal way was in fact appointed for something great. But that is all after the fact. Recall Herod was entirely unaware of Jesus' birth for probably more than a year until the Magi showed up from the east. The birth couldn't have been more regular. The heavens didn't open up for the Christ child to descend. A special place was not prepared for the birth of the king of kings. There was no fanfare or public announcement of his arrival. He was just born. That's it. He was just born. The God-man came to earth in an entirely regular way because he was fully human, just like you and I, yet without sin. Now, why does this matter so much? Why do we emphasize the humanity of Christ? Why does the regularity of the birth get included by Luke as something that gives us certainty about Jesus? There's two reasons. First, there's the historical reason that has already been made in various ways. If none of this actually happened, if Jesus wasn't really born in Bethlehem to a family from Galilee, if this didn't, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, if this didn't happen, then as Paul tells the Corinthians, we're fools. We're fools because none of it matters. Because the claim of Christianity isn't that we have some philosophical system that makes sense of the world. The claim of Christianity, what we celebrate on Christmas Day, what this is all about is that God came and dwelt with us in human form. That's the claim. And if that didn't happen in history, if there wasn't a dude, and we can call him that, if there wasn't a dude named Jesus in the first century Israel, then we're fools. We should all be at home right now opening presents and eating breakfast casserole and powdered donuts or whatever your tradition is. But we gather here this morning to worship because it did happen. As we've often stated, the claim of Christianity is not simply that we have this philosophical thought, but that something actually happened. And so as much as emotion and feeling happy and experiencing joy and enjoying family and all of that stuff is part of our Christmas experience, none of that is certain and none of that gives us any certainty about anything. As Jay pointed out last week, due to any number of reasons, sometimes this isn't actually the most wonderful time of the year. Sometimes we're enduring pain that presents uh, that presents and Christmas dinner and family simply can't bear for us. But even in the midst of all of that, there is certain hope 
precisely because of what Luke is telling us in this passage. God came down. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself to visit us. He came as one of us bringing salvation with him. See, if the joy of Christmas is only self-referential, if it's only wrapped up in, in, in itself, then it means nothing. It's trivial. It's a ginned up experience. But Luke is here assuring us that the joy of Christmas is much more than that because it's fixed on the historic birth of the Christ child. The second reason this matters, this very human birth matters, is a theological reason. Gregory of Nazianzus, the 4th century church father, is famous for making the statement in the midst of all the Christological debates that were going on at that point, the unredeemed is the unhealed. His point was simple. To save us, Jesus had to be like us. He had to be fully human or it wouldn't work. It needed to be a like sacrifice. Luke's birth narrative reminds us that this was, in fact, the case for Jesus. He took on flesh, and the flesh he took on was like ours. That's why he could redeem us. The Westminster Larger Catechism deals with this issue this way in the 39th question. It asks, why was it necessary that the mediator should be a man? And the answer it gives is this. It was necessary that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. See, if something not like us could die in our place, plenty of lambs, Plenty of rams, plenty of bulls had already been killed. But they didn't work. They didn't work any further than, 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 as the Bible tells us, to provide a reminder that a sacrifice had to be made. For the sacrifice to work, for, for our sin to finally and fully be dealt with, it had to be one like us. Both Gregory and, and the Westminster Divines were merely echoing what the author of Hebrews has already told us. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. That's the difference. You could sacrifice the bulls. You could sacrifice the goats. You could make all of those sacrifices, but you couldn't draw near to the throne of grace. Only the high priest, only once a year, and only following very specific rules. Anyone else that did it died instantly. But now that one like us has come, tempted in every way, yet without sin, now one that feels us, one that knows us, one that gets us, he has come and died. And so now guess what? We can draw near. That's what Christmas is about. God coming down, being made like us so that we could draw near. He drew near to us on Christmas morning so that we, by the death of his son, could draw near to him every day 
of our life for eternity. Luke was writing to give this certainty about the birth of Jesus. He is why we have hope this morning. He is where we find comfort this morning. He is the source of our joy this morning. So by all means, go to, and to whatever level you're able to. Enjoy your family. Open your presence. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy it. Love all of it. But remember, what any of this is able to do, whether any of us, sorry, whether any of us is able this morning to enjoy any of that or not. The joy of Christmas is that the second person of the Trinity took on our flesh with all its infirmities, yet without sin, to redeem us, and that is why we rejoice today. Because this baby was born in real history as God worked out his providential plan to fulfill his covenant through Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. That's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of Christ. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the joy that he brings us this morning. And we ask that you would strengthen us in Christ our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.